the whole point is that you won't be the third. So I should probably start by saying who the sermon isn't for, and it's actually for, it's not for a number of you, but for a good reason. So this sermon isn't for you if you have uh, had someone close to you die in the last 12 to 18 months. It's not for you if you've had a major life illness in the last 6 or 12 or 18 months. Uh, it's not for you if you've been through a divorce or the end of some other relationship in the last 6 or 12 or 18 months. Um, it's not for you if you've uh, lost a job that you've held for years in the last 6 or 12 or 18 months. In other words, if, if you've experienced some life trauma in the last 6 or 12 or 18 months, you're in a really specific place. And I would think that place means that um, part of you is grieving and part of you is sad and part of you is maybe angry and part of you has questions. And some of the questions you ask are things like, why did this happen to me? Why didn't God change the path? Why didn't my prayers work out the way I thought? Why didn't I see something coming that maybe I should have seen coming? How could I have handled it differently? When, um, uh, when was it that, that anyone else was even there for me in the midst of all of this? In other words, um, if, if you are working that all through, that's, that's all healthy, normal important stuff to both feel and to ask and to think about. And, and, and other sermons are for us in those situations. But this sermon is for maybe the majority here and maybe the majority in most congregations on any given week who are not immediately dealing with some major life trauma. And as a result, you have a little more distance on things, and, and um, your heart is maybe not tied into things in the same way it is um, in the face of the losses. And, and I think uh, when any of us are in those moments in life where things are kind of basically okay, that, that's hopefully, as per the children's message, when we grow roots. That's when we have a chance to ask questions apart from the actual events. That's when we get to build relationships. That's when we work on the life of prayer. That's when we listen to scripture. All of that stuff builds the roots so that when those various setbacks and challenges and disasters happen to us, uh, then the roots are there to kind of keep nourishing us. They give us something that hangs on when nothing else seems to. So this sermon is, is, is about building roots. It real specifically is not an answer to immediate challenge. Okay? So uh, it's always about context. And so just thinking of tonight's gospel lesson, which um, you know, I, I think you've heard a few times before, uh, it's just so valuable to keep the context of the story in mind. Um, so there's a lot of context there, but uh, we're in Luke all this year. I would think the two best-known parables of Jesus are the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, both of which show up, uh, they're only in Luke, and they show up within five chapters of each other. And they, they both show up in the center section that we're in right now, 
which is the section where Jesus is journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem. And, and then all the stories are about journeys as well. Uh, if, you, if you search the, the scripture for uh, the words like path or way or journey, it shows up like over 700 times. If you search for the noun uh, answer or solution, it shows up less than 50 times. In other words, the, the Bible is a book that is not there to primarily give us direct answers. It's a book that's deeply aware that as you go through life, you're on this journey. And, and it's easy to get lost, and it's easy to feel like you're by yourself. And in fact, the scripture is there to remind us that we don't have to get lost, and we aren't necessarily alone. That's the broad context. A little more context, because it's, it's really important. If, you, if you're working your way through Luke's gospel, the first really significant story is in chapter 4, when early in his ministry, he goes back home to his hometown of Nazareth. And everybody's excited to see him, and they give him the role of the prophet Isaiah to read in the synagogue, which he does. And when he sits down, everyone speaks well of him. At least that's the public thing. But Luke reports that there's all this tittering going on beneath the surface. And the tittering beneath the surface was, where did he get all this? People don't trust what he's saying. Uh, Is he not a carpenter? In other words, he's not a trained rabbi. And most of all, is this not Mary's son, which is a put-down in that world because men were known by their father's name, not their mother's name. And so the reality of the reaction of his own hometown is that they are gossipy and small and tittering. And Luke summarizes it all by saying, and they took offense at him. Yeah, I guess they did. What did they try to do to him, by the way? Ultimately, they tried to throw him off a cliff. This is his own hometown, and they basically want to get rid of him. Does he take it personally? Would you take it personally? I'd take it personally. Jesus doesn't seem to take it personally. He's very philosophical. Prophets are not with honor, except in their own hometown. And and he's amazed that he can't do any miracles there because they don't have any faith. And he just leaves. He just leaves. In other words, in a situation where virtually all of us would take it really personally and would probably lash out at these people who who had raised you and now turned their back on you, he just says, hey, it it happens. Let's keep going. Preaches the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, where, among other things, he says, don't return evil for evil, return good for evil, pray for those who persecute you. In other words, what he had just done in Nazareth is what he teaches his followers to do. Then two weeks ago, if you were here, Jesus goes to, uh, starts the journey towards Jerusalem, sends messengers ahead to a Samaritan village, asks if they can stay there, and can they stay in the Samaritan village? The answer is, no, you are not welcome, at which point James and John want to do what? They want to pull down fire from heaven to obliterate the Samaritan village. Was it personal for James and John? Do you think they knew anybody in that Samaritan village? Probably not. Jesus, in the village where it was personal for him, his own hometown, he just walked away. James and John in a place where they didn't know anybody and and they just were obnoxious to them, they want to blow the place off the map. Jesus rebukes them. Last week's gospel lesson, 
In the face of all of that failure, Jesus says to 70 of his closest followers, go out two by two and proclaim the good news and heal people. You'll actually be able to do it. Again, if I were them, I'd be a little skeptical about that based on Jesus' seeming lack of success and the other stories I've just noted. But they do it, and it's amazing. People are transformed by good news. People are healed. They come back with a sense of what is possible through the power of the Spirit. And now you get to chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Where, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is always teaching, and one of the experts in the Jewish law by which the entire society was organized um, challenges Jesus on a, a, a kind of obvious debating point, which is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I know you guys are all tracking that, at that point in Jewish history, uh, maybe half of Jews thought that there was eternal life and a resurrection, and half didn't. So perhaps that's the motivation behind the question. Which side are you on in this debate within the Jewish community, Jesus? Is there even eternal life? And if there is, how do you earn it? And Jesus, uh, you know, great teacher that he is, just turns around and says, well, what do you say the answer is? And the guy falls into that and he says, well, the answer is, love your God with all your soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus says, yep, you got it. Go do that. You'll be fine. Then the next question is, what? Well, who's my neighbor? Seemingly a simple question, not a simple question. Uh, within Jewish debate at that time, again, two views of thought on that. One view of thought was, anyone who's within the Jewish community is a neighbor, but anyone outside it isn't. A narrow view. And there was an alternative viewpoint which said, everyone's a neighbor, whether they're Jewish or not. So now this perhaps is the real crux of why this guy is challenging Jesus. Uh, how are you going to land on this one, Jesus? Are you going to retain kind of the purity of Judaism and therefore its narrowness, which cuts us off from others? Or are you going to, are you going to hold to its broadness and its inclusiveness for all, but as a result we might end up selling out and losing our identity? Ha <laughs> ha, which of those two outcomes are you in favor of, Jesus? And then Jesus tells the story. And the story, uh, you know, if you're just listening to that for the first time and you're in Jesus' audience, I don't think we can relate to how offensive it would have been because Jesus really mocks the first two people who come along to help the guy who's been beaten to a pulp. Um, it's written in really simple uh, verbs that, that first the priest and then the Levite, these two religious professionals come along, and because of the regulations and laws of their time, they have a reason not to help this guy. They don't want to be made unclean, and so they don't. They look at him, and they just keep going. And the verdict on them in the mind of the audience is devastating because they all know they should have helped but they all recognize that, wow, we do this all the time. We come up with our legal excuses for why we shouldn't do something. And then, of course, the third guy who comes along, half the Jews in the audience, by their own definition, wouldn't have had to have helped. He's not a Jew. We wouldn't have to help him if it was a Samaritan laying by the side of the road. But it's a Jew laying by the side of the road, and now an enemy comes along, and he 
is moved with pity and goes way, way, way beyond what's expected takes care of the guy, binds up his wounds, takes him to the inn, cares for him all night, leaves two days' worth of, of, of wages behind to care for the guy while he's gone, and says, when I come back, I'll pay the rest. Goes way beyond what's expected of him. Someone who would have been despised by the audience. But, of course, the most important thing is always the ending. Who showed mercy to the man who was beaten is Jesus' question, and what does the lawyer say back? He says what? Well, or who acted as a neighbor to the one who was beaten, and the answer is the one who showed him mercy. What doesn't the lawyer say? He doesn't say the Samaritan, right? He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Just the one who showed mercy, to which Jesus then says, go and do likewise. So now, th- this is the, the hard part of it, because see, those are everything in that story is, is actually both a really hard lesson for us and also a really encouraging lesson for us. So let's take the hard part first. Um, starting with the lawyer, not even being able to say the, the word Samaritan. Maybe sometime you'll be in some situation where you're in a conversation where you're speaking or you're listening to somebody else speak, and, and they are so um, deeply estranged from another human being that they've known for a long time that they will not even say their name. You know, you have to play situations like that by ear. When I'm in those situations, I usually try and say the name of that other person because I think we... We obviously dehumanize somebody else if we're not even willing to use their name. But I, I think the real damage is what it does to the, the person who won't speak it. In other words, we, de- we dehumanize ourselves when, when we won't even speak somebody else's name. It, it's, it's like the, the, the anger bounces back and destroys our souls. That's so true in individual things. Uh, in our current society right now, um, you know, to, to call someone, uh, if you think of the immigration debate, to, to call someone an, an illegal, uh, to refer to another human being that way. I, I mean, you can come down wherever you want on the larger debate, but um, it's, a Hon- it's a Honduran, it's a Salvadoran, it's somebody with a name and a family. Uh, we, we can at least remember that that the people that we like and also the people that we don't like are, are still human beings. Uh, to not say somebody's name, that, that destroys us, maybe more than it destroys them. And then the other really tough thing is, the reason this story is, is so hard is that sooner or later, you or I are all the priests and Levites in that we all come up with our rationalizations and our excuses for why our time and why our resources shouldn't be used to help somebody else when it's not our problem. And that's people in your own family and it's people across the globe. And um, the reason why this sermon is, is, is not for you if you're struggling with something right now is, is, is it's, it's for those of us who, who kind of have the luxury <laughs> Of, of being able to say, why do I do that? 
why, why do I make those excuses? And why do I ask how and why and where and when when the real question is who? Jesus always says the answers to questions is who. And it's not even who's the neighbor, like who should, who's worthy of my help. It's who am I going to be a neighbor to? That's the point of the story. And at some level, it's really discouraging because we all fail. We all refuse to use our time and resources to help other human beings. We do it all the time. On the other hand, it's, a, it's the most encouraging story almost in Scripture, I think. Because Jesus tells it right after that time where those 70 followers go out and they have great success when they maybe had no reason to expect it. In other words, the people of God succeed at this all the time. You and I succeed all the time in sharing our time and our resources in situations that aren't our responsibility. We didn't cause it. It's not up to us to solve. But we are our brothers and sisters and keepers as we walk through life. Why would we not pray for another human being, find out their name, walk beside them, share something with them, salve up their wounds, and say, I'll come back and help you when I get done with the job I'm on. Jesus understands and knows that you and I are eminently capable of that. And time and again, we can think of examples of people who've done it, including a lot of people right here. The Levite passed by. The priest passed by. Two people. The whole point of the story for you and me is what? I'm not going to be the third. 